Hey, everybody. It is Monday, November 21st. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. We read all the news so you don't have to. Uh, Jill, we have a a lot of news heading into uh, a very short, jam-packed holiday week. That's right. So let's just get straight to it. We're learning more about that mass shooting at a gay nightclub over the weekend and the heroes who stopped it from being even worse. Twitter 2.0 is taking shape. Who's back on the platform and who's still off? A, shall we say, difficult start for Qatar and their $200 billion World Cup. Elizabeth Holmes is getting some prison time. And the White House hosts a wedding as the president turns 80 over the weekend. Okay, let's start with that mass shooting over the weekend at Club Q. It is a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs, Colorado. The FBI is now joining in the investigation. At least five people were killed, 25 injured. The alleged gunman, 22-year-old Anderson Lee Aldrich, is in custody. Police are crediting patrons inside the club for subduing the gunman. Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers says someone acted quickly. They grabbed the gun from the gunman and hit him with it. And when police got to the scene minutes after that man was still on top of him, pinning him down. And now it all started shortly before midnight. Aldrich allegedly walked into the club and immediately began firing his long gun. Other firearms were found at the scene. It's not clear who they belong to. Authorities say the motive behind the attack at Club Q is still unknown, but they are looking into whether this was a hate crime. As of this recording, authorities not releasing names of the victims. Yeah, there's a lot of questions here, Jill, as uh, we start to get in some details, especially around the shooter, Aldrich. Uh, He was known to authorities from a previous arrest. In fact, he was arrested and charged last year in connection with a bomb threat in a neighborhood of just about 15 miles from the nightclub. His mother had actually called the sheriff's office last year. This is June 2021 say that her son was threatening to hurt her with a homemade bomb and other weapons. Deputies actually ordered an evacuation of the neighborhood, confronted Aldrich back then. But then it's unclear what took place because charges were then dropped against Aldridge and the case was sealed. Why they did that is unclear. So it is raising questions over whether law enforcement officials were aware of the warning signs given that the case was sealed. Keep in mind, Jill, that Colorado does have a red flag law that does give local judges the authority to order the confiscation of firearms from individuals. There's a whole number of states with these red flag laws. Uh, basically, if somebody has a mental illness or is a prone to violence, their families can call local authorities to take away their guns. It is not clear whether that was used in this case. Uh, Colorado Springs, that specific department, is actually only engaged in two of these red flag laws. So anyway, there's a lot of questions in regards to what happened last year, why he still had weapons, uh, and why you know certain uh, parts of the law were not used or at least not effective this time around. You know, Moshe, it's just so infuriating because we've covered how many of these mass shootings. And and seriously, I don't recall one where there were not red flags. And I use that in terms of like the expression red flags and not the red flag laws, you know, where there were not glaring warning signs about the individual. Well, that's the thing is like, and we saw this with the Highland Park uh, July 4th parade shooting in Illinois over the summer, is in a number of cases the people closest to these shooters were clearly aware there were issues, right? But it's incumbent upon them, friends and family, to get the authorities involved. And many people are prone to just want to be able to handle things internally and not be turning over family members. Now, I will say that according to the Washington Post, in the three years the red flag law has been in effect in Colorado, there have been 348 cases. So that's 348 cases where weapons were taken away from somebody. But to your point, clearly more needs to be done given the tragedy that that did unfold here. 
Club Q, meanwhile, has been around for 20 years. And up until recently, it was the only LGBTQ club in Colorado Springs. Patrons describe it as a safe place, kind of like a home away from home. Colorado Governor Jared Polis, who's the first openly gay governor in the United States, thanked the people at Club Q who blocked the gunmen. And also he uh, thanked the first responders. Yeah, sadly, this brings up memories uh, for many, especially in the LGBTQ community, of the 2016 Pulse nightclub shooting that was down in Orlando, you might recall. That was actually the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history at the time. 49 people killed, 50 others injured. Uh, So again, the gay community being targeted here. And it does come as uh, many in the community are worried about the increasing anti-trans and anti-LGBT rhetoric happening on social media. In tech news, we're getting a better idea of what Twitter 2.0 will look like under Elon Musk. For one, he's reinstated former President Trump on Twitter. It came after Musk conducted a poll on the platform saying, reinstate former President Trump? Yes or no? More than 15 million people voted. 52% agreed that he should be allowed back on the platform. Musk wrote, the people have spoken. Trump will be reinstated. It's not clear, though, if Trump is going to actually use the platform again. He's been banned since shortly after the January 6th riots. He had previously said that even if Twitter reinstated him, he would stick with another social media platform, Truth Social. Uh, And he is not the only controversial person back on Twitter. Yeah, Jill, but can former President Trump really um, hold himself back? from a, another audience. I, I was thinking that. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I think <laughs> I think it's too tempting. But at the same time, you mentioned Truth Social. That is his copycat social media site that he created after he was banned. So he does have a business interest in getting people there. And by the way, he's been truthing up. A, I think they call it truthing. He's been truthing up a storm this weekend on Truth Social in regards to a few different matters. Uh, the other controversial person you mentioned, by the way, Jill, who's back on the platform as of Sunday, is Kanye West, aka Ye. He returned to Twitter on Sunday with a uh, classic tweet, quote, testing, testing, seeing if my Twitter is unblocked. Uh, Last month, Twitter, uh, under previous management, confirmed that West had been locked out of his account due to violation of Twitter's policies. You might recall his October 9th uh, tweet, infamous tweet, promising DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. Uh, That tweet has since been removed it's unclear what Ye will be doing next now that he has the uh, social media platform back. Uh, but one thing I was really thinking about here, Jill, is as Elon tries to make Twitter profitable, it is a business based around personalities. It is a circus of sorts. And you need attractions to keep people coming back, unpredictable attractions, right? And so in this case, like, how do you keep like main events like Trump and Ye banned from a platform that you're trying to attract people on? Obviously, Elon... Uh, engages and and does his own job of treading water, if you will, saying kind of unexpected things. Uh, One thing that we should take note of, though, he was asked in one of the tweets if he'll bring back Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist, back on. Uh, Some people who were celebrating Ye coming back on, Trump coming back on. uh, And Elon did say he was drawing a line there and has no plans, at least for now, to allow Alex Jones back on the platform. Meanwhile, the amount of Twitter staff that is monitoring many of these tweets just keeps getting smaller. So first, Musk laid off about half the company. Then he fired dozens of employees who had criticized or mocked him in tweets and internal messages. Then he set a deadline of 5 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday for all employees to respond yes on a Google form, which would mean that they did, in fact, want to stay on for Twitter 2.0, as he calls it. By the way, Jill, that Google form only had one answer. Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> you had one option. Yes or yes? Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, so Twitter 2.0 is basically this cultural reset where workers would said that they'd be willing to work these long hours, quote, extremely hardcore. That's how Elon Musk described it. Um, and if not, they would get a severance package and would basically have to be on their way. Needless to say, hundreds of workers said no thank you to Musk's ultimatum and left. This was fascinating to watch on Thursday, late Thursday night into Friday. There was like a collective freak out, Jill. It was actually just after we taped our podcast for Friday on Thursday night. And like people were saying goodbye to each other on Twitter, being like, it's been great knowing everybody. This also came as there was a Washington Post and New York Times story Thursday evening about how like so many people have been fired at Twitter that like there's no one to manage any of the systems anymore. So like the system could just break at some point. So she amid the World Cup, which a lot of people tweet about. But I, you know, I, I think it was a case on Thursday where there was this collective freakout on the left among the media uh, powers that be that was seemed a little ridiculous. In fact, CBS News, our former employer, both of us, actually froze their presence on Twitter for 48 hours as they assessed whether Twitter was the right place for them, which sort of a bizarre decision. But then they decided to tweet again on Sunday, but they're still on TikTok, which is like a national security threat. Either way, it seems like uh, a lot of folks, uh, especially in the, the media, the legacy media, are, are having trouble with all of this. The big question, though, as he lets Trump back on, yay back on, um, and kind of attracts more controversy is, will advertisers come back to the platform? There's been a whole bunch of large advertisers that have frozen their ads uh, for now, which is a, a huge revenue stream for Twitter. The real test, Bosch, is going to be whether Tom Hanks feels comfortable <laughs> going back onto Twitter. <laughs> if he feels like he can post without basically someone cursing him out, then we'll know it's a, a safe space. For those of you not on the inside joke, Tom Hanks <laughs> back in June, which was a topic for one of our June podcasts, told the New York Times that he's <laughs> off of Twitter because they're so mean to him that he tweets like, oh, that's a beautiful rainbow. And people are like, F you, Tom Hanks. And so he quit Twitter. So I guess <laughs> that is the test. I like that test, the Tom Hanks test. Okay, Jill, we have a lot more news to get to in this podcast. But first, I wanted to thank our big sponsor this week, Bull and Branch. If you follow me on Instagram, you might have been part of that viral debate recently about whether to use top sheets or not, whether you just use the duvet, um, et cetera, et cetera. There was a story about Gen Z millennials kicking off the top sheet, led to a whole viral debate. I got thousands of messages. Well, Bull and Branch, the betting and cheat brand, took notice and is very excited to be offering a special deal to Mo News listeners ahead of Black Friday. Early, early deal here. It's incredible. 25% off for a limited time with the promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S. My wife, Alex, and I recently got a set that included Eurosham's pillowcases, a duvet cover, and yes, a top sheet, even though we're millennials. And I have to tell you that Bull & Branch is a game changer. They get softer with each wash. We're loving the 100% organic threads. If you're looking for a gift for yourself or a loved one this holiday season, definitely check them out. We literally spend a third of our lives in bed, so sheets are a big deal. Again, Bull & Branch is offering a special early Black Friday deal, their biggest one of the year, 25% off and free shipping when you use the promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, over at bullandbranch.com. That's bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, bullandbranch.com. Promo code is MONEWS. The offer ends on November 27th. Everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. 
And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Motion and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They're completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, 1-5% off your order. All right, Jill, let's get to the speed read on this Monday. This is a follow-up on something we told you was going down on Friday from CNBC. Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes was sentenced Friday to more than 11 years in prison. The former darling of the tech community who was on the cover of Forbes and Fortune and the Wall Street Journal is headed to prison in the coming months after deceiving investors out of nearly a billion dollars. Uh, this is in regards to Theranos's blood testing technology, which turned out not to work. She is ordered to surrender to uh, authorities on April 27th. That is notable, Jill, because that is just after she is set to give birth to what will be her second child. She actually can this one after the guilty verdict, the previous one during the trial, her lawyers, uh, actually the, the prosecutors actually accused her of trying to seek sympathy from the judge uh, with these pregnancies. That said, she did show some remorse in court uh, as the sentencing went down on Friday. Uh, she said, quote, I loved Theranos. It was my life's work. My team meant the world to me. I'm devastated by my failings. I'm so, so sorry. I gave everything I had to build my company. The defense team had argued that she should have faced a maximum of 18 months. Prosecutors were going for 21-ish years. It looks like the judge fell right in the middle here with just over 11 years that she is currently set to serve behind bars. Right. And her attorneys say she's going to appeal. But analysts say that they probably don't have a great case because the sentencing, as you mentioned, was well within the guidelines. One expert telling TechCrunch that if she does get credit for good behavior, she'll likely serve about 9.5 years with no possibility of parole. We talked on Friday in our last podcast about some of the other victims, like the patients who got faulty test results, like the false positive cancer and HIV results. The judge said he would not take that into account because Holmes, as we were mentioning, was not found guilty on those charges. One thing that could have made a difference, though, and separates this case from other financial crimes, like insider trading. Alex Schultz, who's the father of whistleblower Tyler Schultz, spoke to the court and he talked about how his son had to sleep with a knife under his pillow when he suspected that he was being followed by private investigators that Theranos had hired. So besides for defrauding investors, this was not a victimless crime by any means. No, not at all. I mean, it, it, if you haven't uh, listened to the Dropout podcast, uh, it's a Rebecca Jarvis's podcast about this. It was also turned into a Hulu uh, movie. It's definitely worth the watch to kind of just see how this went down and how cutthroat Elizabeth Holmes and her team uh, was. By the way, notably, um, since you brought up Tyler Schultz, Jill, 
So his dad was Alex Schultz, who testified here. His grandfather was the more notable personality here, George Schultz. George Schultz, former Nixon administration official, former Secretary of State under Reagan. Uh, him and Henry Kissinger were among these heavyweights that somehow Holmes had gotten onto the board and convinced of the merits of her technology. And as this all went down, so Tyler, young Tyler, early 20s, gets this job partially because his grandfather, George, famous George, is on the board. Tyler is uncovering that like this place is a mess and deceiving people. Tyler goes to his grandfather, George Schultz, and was like, um, granddad, uh, there's problems at Theranos, like they're lying to you. And he's like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like Elizabeth is great. It actually led to the whole dispute within the family where George wanted Tyler, young Tyler, to apologize to Elizabeth. Obviously, Tyler, as you mentioned, is sleeping with a knife under his pillow, is being followed by investigators. Um, George eventually, just before his death, I think he just died last year at the age of 101, did put out a statement saying he basically apologized to his grandson in public for not believing him and believing Elizabeth Holmes over the grandson. So there's this really interesting family drama here. Uh, that unfolded as part of this larger, larger um, Theranos story. From the New York Times, Naomi Biden, president's granddaughter, is wed at the White House. The wedding took place on the South Lawn on Saturday morning. Reception with dessert and dancing was to follow in the evening. Of the seven Biden grandchildren, 28-year-old Naomi Biden is a particularly influential presence in Biden's life. It was she who called a family meeting to urge her grandfather to run for president in 2019, and she'll be involved in the family discussions this winter as her grandfather thinks about running again. A Washington attorney with an interest in politics, Biden's been a frequent presence at White House events. She's the daughter of Hunter Biden, the president's son and his ex-wife, Kathleen Boole, who they divorced in 2017. Yeah, this is a fascinating story, and I'll tell you why she might be a frequent presence at the White House in just a moment. But Jill, this did came... <laughs> oh, tell us, Moshe. <laughs> just give me one moment. Jill, you'll just have to wait just a moment here, because I, I want to first talk about the fact that... So the wedding happened on Saturday. Pretty cool pictures, actually, getting married on the uh, South Lawn, the White House, because some people are like, wow, as a taxpayer, what is this costing me? Well, it turns out the first family does pay for um, ceremonies like this. And by the way, if your grandfather was president, would you not get married at the White House? Like, I dare any of you to uh, deny <laughs> yourself that. But what was interesting is on Sunday, uh, just yesterday, Joe turned 80 years old. He is our oldest president in American history again. Uh, if he runs again and is inaugurated again, he'd be 82 on Inauguration Day. For those keeping score at home, if Trump is elected again, he will be 78 on Inauguration Day. I found this poll over the weekend, which I thought was interesting because I'm just obsessed with this whole storyline of how old our leaders are. 86% of Americans say they believe the cutoff for serving as president should be age 75 or younger, which would preclude both Biden and Trump from being president again. Do you think that's fair? Um, I do think it's fair. I don't know what age the cutoff should be, but I if you if there's a minimum for how young you can be, then I don't right, see 35. why there shouldn't be yeah. an age gap, you know, a, a ceiling for how old you can be as well. Um, the thing is though, I tend to think that if I were in that position, I wouldn't want to run again. I would want to have some time to enjoy the post-presidency. Like, like just a few years. A few even years a few life. years. I Without, mean, think yeah. about it. You basically make, can make a boatload of money on these speaking events, you know, pretty mm -hmm. much for just showing up places. You could write a book, get millions of dollars in an advance. I don't know. I, I think I would just want to enjoy that period a little bit. 
All right, Jill, I teased the Naomi Biden thing, and I want to get back to this uh, first White House wedding in just over a decade. This is the 19th overall in White House history in just over 200 years. Uh, the most recent wedding was the Obama photographer, Pete Souza. He got married at the White House. As far as families are concerned, the Bushes had a reception for Jenna Bush Hager uh, during that administration. Hillary Clinton's brother got married there during that administration. LBJ's two daughters got married a year apart. Uh, both had receptions at the White House. One had their ceremony at the White House. And uh, Nixon's daughter also got married at the White House. So we went through a whole number of presidencies where we did see weddings. This is the first grandchild, uh, speaking to our age conversation earlier, to get married at the White House. Uh, people have been saying who got, who's paying for it. The Bidens are. Uh, in fact, I was talking to some folks about this, and I'd love to fact check this, that taxpayers might have actually gotten off cheaper this go around with the Bidens holding at the White House and paying for um, the specifics, as opposed to the president flying on Air Force One to some other location and the Secret Service having to secure a whole third party facility. So FYI to the uh, critics out there, though, again, I dare you, your grandpa's president, you are getting married to the White House. Okay. (laughs) Okay. And now for the deepest tease, the reason why Naomi is a presence at so many events, Jill, she lives on the third floor of the White House, which is like buried in one of the stories that she lives on the third floor. There's this extra room upstairs. So Naomi Biden and her now husband live upstairs. This is the same room where Michelle Obama's mom, Marion Robinson, lived during that administration. And also where Melania's parents, uh, Melania Trump's parents, uh, lived during that administration. So there's this crash pad upstairs. In fact, I want to write a whole book about this <laughs> because then knew? I was reading I was reading into this. Like Ulysses S. Grant's mother-in-law lived up there. FDR's mom lived up there and apparently she was like really nasty to Eleanor. There's like a great story about this extra room in the White House that like we need to we need to dive deeper into. Because that's probably where all the action happens. We were talking about would you rather be the heir or the spare? I feel like this is the American version of that. Like do you want to live in the White House where you're making all the decisions or are you just kind of in that spare third floor? It's where you can have fun. There's no pressure. I like it. Yeah, apparently like, there's great stories like uh, like um, Michelle Obama's mother was like doing her own laundry. She didn't want people like touch her clothes. Like there was like this like there's interesting storylines. And so people are like, wait, what is she doing living up there? I was like, again, your grandfather is president. You have an opportunity to live in the White House. Do you not live in the White House for a little bit? Like especially when with rent where it is these days? There is something though that feels a little bit different about a grandchild living there versus the parents. Because didn't Michelle's mom live up there and she she helped raise the kids? Right, like Sasha and Malia were young at that age. Right, like there was actually a function for her to be there. As opposed to two lawyers in their 20s living up there. Right, as opposed to these two lawyers who just clearly just want to live in the White House. Yeah, no, you, you make a good point. We could do a whole separate conversation. I feel like there's definitely a presidential historian, like one of these. Like, I don't know if t- we, we should uh, burn Doris Kearns Goodwin on uh, the third floor <laughs> of the White House, but like someone like that. I feel like this could easily be a Netflix series and it would just be called The Third Floor, right? That's clearly yeah. a great title for it. Jill, I totally agree. All right, Jill, our next speed read comes to us from ESPN. The World Cup launched on Sunday. It's off to a rough start, though, for the home country, Qatar. And by the way, I will admit... Uh, gutter, cutter, your pronunciation, much closer to the truth than my pronunciation last week. And I will accept it for the rest of this World Cup, Joel. I feel like this is the highest compliment, Mosh, that because you're like an encyclopedia of information. So I feel like mm-hmm. the fact that I kind of got one on you, I, I feel, <laughs> I don't know, I, I feel a sense of accomplishment here. I will say this, I'm less Britannica and I'm more Wikipedia, as in I'm willing to be edited, Jill. Okay, I like that. Well, 
the Qataris, the Qataris uh, lost over the weekend in the first game to Ecuador, 2-0. Ecuadorian fans were heard chanting, we want beer in the stands during the win, <laughs> while the Qatari supporters left en masse uh, before the game even ended. Uh, there were, you know, huge swaths of empty seats in the second half, which really summed up the disappointing start for the uh, home team. Over the weekend, by the way, and the reason for this beer chant is that uh, Qatar decided to ban beer sales at stadiums during the entire of the World Cup, the only thing available to the regular folk, by the way, if you have a VIP suite, you can still drink booze. The rest of us have to drink, the rest of us, I'm not there, but the rest <laughs> of them allegedly have to drink alcohol-free Bud Zero um, at the game. Uh, it's a and, and that surprised uh, many folks, though it is a conservative Islamic nation that typically bans alcohol, but they decided to do this a couple days out, which really upset a lot of fans out there. And didn't it also upset and surprise Budweiser, who's the sponsor <laughs> yes, of Bud the Weiser, games? Who's spending a whole bunch of money <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we kind of provided the Bud Zero thinking we probably wouldn't make that much money off of it, but that's how we're going to have to make our money this go around. And Moshe, that comes as the head of the international soccer organization that puts on the games. FIFA is under fire. FIFA president Gianni Infantino raising eyebrows Saturday when he attempted to show empathy with marginalized groups by telling reporters in Qatar, quote, I feel gay. I feel like a migrant worker, among other things. Critics have taken aim at Qatar for hosting the tournament despite the country's human rights record where being gay is banned and punishable with prison time. Also, their treatment of migrant workers has been under scrutiny. In a nearly hour-long monologue over the weekend, Infantino compared the treatment of those groups and others to his time growing up as an Italian immigrant in Germany where he was made fun of for having red hair and freckles. Yeah, I'm going to just let that one stand. He's like basically like, Folks, um, I posted a clip of this and like there's just so much because, again, he was like doing this media question time where he just went on a whole rant where he's like, you don't have a right to to criticize uh, Qatar. Uh, by the way, I sympathize with everybody. I had red hair growing up and people made fun of me. And then he went on to say that Europe, you've done really terrible things for 3000 years. And so you have to spend the next 3000 years apologizing for them before you take aim at the Qataris and just on and on and on and on and like. For an organization that's already under scrutiny, FIFA, which potentially takes bribes, you know, people are asking, like, how did Qatar, this small little country with no real history of soccer, get the games? You're like, well, you know, uh, it's sort of like a lot of questions around the IOC, the International Olympic Committee. FIFA has some of those same questions as to why some countries get to host these rights and um, whether there's certain money exchanging hands. Again, it hasn't been proven, but that's certainly something that is under scrutiny. All right. This from CNN. COP27 Summit agrees to help climate victims but it does nothing to stop fossil fuels. The world has failed to reach an agreement to phase out fossil fuels after marathon UN climate talks were stonewalled by a number of oil-producing nations. Negotiators from nearly 200 countries at the UN Climate Summit in Egypt took the historic step of agreeing to set up a loss and damage fund meant to help vulnerable countries cope with climate disasters and agreed the globe needs to cut greenhouse gas emissions nearly in half by 2030. The agreement also reaffirmed the goal of keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Uh, so that, I guess, is the good news. But I mean... Reaffirming goals. That's what they're that's Yeah, what they're reaffirming goals, but not taking any steps towards actually achieving them. Nice My job. goal is to grow the Mo News podcast. <laughs> uh, I think we can all agree to that. That'd be great. 
Um, in this case, much more important things, as in reducing greenhouse gases. So there's this loss and damage fund, Jill, um, and there are questions on how that fund would operate. They actually have set up a committee, as one does in international organizations, to figure things out. So they're like, let's set up a committee, loss and damage fund. And this is effectively what a lot of the poor countries who are being impacted by climate change want created because they were like, hey, U.S., China, etc. Like we here in Bangladesh, we here in Ethiopia, like aren't really contributing to climate change, but we're dealing with the impact of it. So we need, want you to compensate us. Brazil wants this because they want to develop. And they're like, if you want us to save the rainforest, like you got to pay us. And so how this fund would work, um, how would we operational, who funds it? Uh, there's a transitional committee trying to figure all that out. And then you have the larger goal of reducing emissions, which is the biggest source of planetary warming. Well, China and Saudi Arabia got together and basically blocked a key proposal to phase out all fossil fuels, not just coal. They've agreed on coal, but China and Saudi Arabia are like, yeah, yeah, we're not agreeing. We, we don't want to agree to eliminate oil effectively. And so they've reaffirmed that our goal, our goal is to stop planetary warming beyond one and a half degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So pre-1860, before industrialization began, we're now 1.1 degrees warmer than that. Uh, the expectation is that within the next 10 years, we will hit that one and a half degree mark. Beyond that mark, the risk for extreme drought, wildfires, floods, food shortages, all increases dramatically. So that's why when you hear that, you don't think it seems like that much, but it does impact things and different parts of the planet are impacted in different ways. Like the Arctic will see a warming way above one and a half degrees while other areas will not. Either way, one Earth, all impacted. One piece I will end here with good news, Jill, is that out of these talks, the COP27 talks, the two biggest polluters in the world, uh, yours truly, the United States and China, are now talking directly once again, because uh, notably, uh, China hasn't agreed to much lately. And sticking with the climate change story, we have this from CNBC. Google Maps got a big update that shows where fast charging electric vehicle stations are. So if you drive an electric vehicle, you'll now be able to filter charging stations to find the most time efficient option. So basically, you search for a charging station in Google Maps and a new option appears that lets you filter out to show only those fast charge stations that are compatible with the plug that your car uses. So never again will you have to roll up to a charging station and find out that your car's plug doesn't fit. I do not have an electric vehicle, so I did not know this was even an issue. Yeah, Jill, I know I have uh, more and more friends and family either open to buying electric cars or starting to buy electric cars, and there's still a lot to be done in terms of infrastructure. Uh, some of it will be funded by the federal government with that whole infrastructure plan that Congress uh, passed uh, this past year and Biden signed into law. Um, right now, battery-powered cars are making up the fastest-growing segment of the auto market. Sales have jumped 70% in the first nine months of this year compared to the same period last year. And buyers of electric vehicles in 2021 were more likely to be women and tended to be younger than in 2019. One expert was quoted as saying, two years ago, it was all electric vehicle nerds. It appears more recent buyers belong to what uh, the experts call the early majority, which is when the first sizable segment of a population begins to adopt innovation. Uh, just for those keeping score right now, uh, gas cars, of course, still account for the vast majority of the car market, uh, just about 95% of the market. But with the electric vehicles taking on more of a share, uh, the number of electric vehicles have doubled in recent years. So now they're just about five and a half percent of the market, and they were just over two percent of the market uh, uh, in the last couple of years. Look, when gas is averaging five dollars a gallon, which it was at some point earlier this year, 
who wouldn't think about going to electric, right? Yeah, it's all about infrastructure, right? Like if you're doing long road trips in an area that doesn't have many electric chargers, it makes it more difficult. So they have to be building these things out. Uh, I guess fast charging is really important because sometimes you got to like, I know I know some people who take advantage of like Costco's and stuff that have charging stations, but sometimes you got to sit there for a couple hours as the charger's up. So fast charging is going to be key here. Uh, clearly Google Maps getting the game to make uh, more information available to people. So it'll be interesting if we're able to catch up uh, to all these requirements you're seeing in places like California, New York, in regards to electric vehicles. So I still I still drive a gas-powered uh, car, Jill. Um, I think you do too, right? I do. And you know what? When you talk about fast charging or slow charging, it's almost like it could be like 40 minutes or 45 minutes. That's what we're talking about to fully charge up an electric vehicle in some cases. Mm-hmm. Imagine having kids in the car. It, that's just not realistic, <laughs> you know, in, yeah, in many I mean, ways. I'm, I'm, Unless it becomes cheap enough to like have in your garage, but then you have to own a home. And so then it becomes a privilege thing if you don't own a home or, you know, you don't live in a building that has enough charging stations. So we're way behind on charging stations. And it'll be interesting to kind of see how this unfolds over the next couple of years as policymakers really try to make this a thing. Okay, that's a wrap on this Monday edition of the Mo News Podcast. Read us out, Jill. Read us out. (laughs) Thank you for (laughs) listening to the Daily Podcast. Please follow us, subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And a reminder to review us. Uh, Some of the reviews, by the way, have been amazing, Jill. I don't know if you've gone into the um, Apple reviews section where you get to read them. In Spotify, you don't get to read them. But on Apple, and like people are so amazing and so kind and saying such nice things. So we appreciate those who've done it. And join join the review party, everybody, in this week that we give thanks. Yes, we will be very thankful for that. And of course, follow Moshe on his Instagram at Moshe, M-O-S-H-E-H. And uh, we'll see everyone back here tomorrow. Bye, everybody.